you guys came back for the second episode. I guess that means you enjoyed the first one. And here we have a very special guest. It will be a very fun ride. You will hear crazy case, tons of twists and turns. It's a mystery. There's speculation. We're going to dive in, talk about some astrology. That special guest that we have today is my soul sister, my best friend, Steph. Hello. I am so happy that you are here. I am so excited. We are going to inform the people, talk about some really cool stuff. Thank you for taking the time to come on and be my special guest this week. I'm so excited. Of course. Thank you for having me. No need to thank me. (laughs) Happy to be here. Thanks, you owe me. I'm your older sister, and I said that you have to be here. You better be here. I'll wedge you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Steph, how about you? uh, Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe give a little intro. What um, first interested you in astrology? How did you get, like, so involved? So, I first got into astrology. um, Well, I guess I should say I first learned about how complex Mm. it should be in 2015. Um, I was on Twitter, of course. Oh, Twitter. It all comes Part back to Twitter. Part of the Twitter, Twitter era. And Rip. I followed this girl. Her name is Danielle Ioka. And she made... I followed her because she popped up on my timeline one day um, with some type of spiritual advice. I can't remember what. And I thought, I really like that. I'm going to follow her. And she is an astrologer as well. I didn't think too much of it. And then she made a tweet one day about... Aquarius moons and I didn't know what that meant but I thought I really relate with that whatever that means I feel like that's me Mm -hmm. so I googled Aquarius moon and I went down a little rabbit hole about what that means and I ended up on a website where you can calculate your birth time and I, I was initially off by 21 minutes with my birth time but I put in what I thought was my birthday time Mm -hmm. and place and I pulled up a chart and I found out I I do have moon in Aquarius so for me I was really taken by that and thought okay I read that I identified with it and I actually have that placement in my chart whatever that means and so from there I continued to look into it time and time again like when this girl would tweet about it I would always think about it Um, I started to follow other people who were in the astrology community on Twitter and read more about it when they would post it. Um, But that was really it. And it wasn't until 2017 um, when I went through an interesting time in life. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt that I was at a point where I needed to understand. I needed to go on some type of self-discovery mission I guess yeah and it brought me back to astrology I had developed an interest in it and it had grown um, to a point where it kind of just coincided where I realized I was looking to figure a lot out about I I guess I didn't even realize that yeah you just just, kind of have like this push of like yeah I got a few things I'd like more understanding or answers up and I, then you dive yeah. into it and you're like oh shit this could actually really help me I in knew a lot it of could ways. help me in some way but I didn't know how I just 
it, it's what I turn to though in a difficult time. It was just <laughs> my self node conjunct Saturn. <laughs> um, is it Saturn? Yes, that's my I have self node conjunct Saturn. All right. Um, so in a difficult time, I started to turn to astrology. Um, you actually gave me my first real book. I can't remember when exactly it was. It was the astrology director. You got it from Value Village, remember? Yeah. It was years ago. Yeah, and it goes into the planets, signs, houses, aspects, um, chart shapes. It, it gets into all of the key pieces of mm -hmm. astrology. So that was really helpful for me. It's like subject matter. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I just, I kept getting books. Now I have quite a collection. Oh, yeah. And... I've gotten into Hellenistic astrology, which is um, like Greek, Greek mm -hmm. times, all of the, that's like a collection of like a Egyptian astrology um, and like Babylonian astrology, all the old stuff mm -hmm. compiled and Western astrology has developed from Hellenistic astrology. So I've looked into a lot of that and it's really, really interesting and once you actually dive in, um, there's so much to it. Absolutely. And there's so much more than what you see on Twitter or oh online. Those are just, you know, it really pulls people in and it's so interesting. But um, you can only learn so much from there, really. Yeah. And the misinformation that's out there, like, especially I... since it's blown up back in 2015, it was like it was not no, all over no, the no. place. Not at it all. It was it was now like it's a, everywhere. Yeah. Everyone is uh face value on say since 2019 yes I feel like 2019 it blew up that's when people i knew and it can be so yeah. annoying but that's like any community of people like you think about anything as simple as like yoga and you're like i don't care about it it's so annoying no it's the people it's like some of the people in it you don't care for those like middle-aged women who go to yoga class sit right at the front make sure they impress the instructor and then tweet about it on their way home to pick up their annoying kid with their iced latte <laughs> you're like i don't care about your yoga class you're so annoying like it's the people and most people don't get into it to look at it like to actually research it it's get regurgitated to the bottom that of it. way yeah and it's then like, things i heard just... this that must be what it means mm -hmm. let's just keep going with it and yeah no one actually sits down with it and understands it and researches it yeah. so that isn't what we're here to do it's so we complex are going to deliver we are here for truth and i was gonna say, truth is kind of really bold because there's a lot of speculating as well but we aren't going to give you misinformation we aren't going to tell you that because you're born at the beginning of the month you're a cusp we won't tell you that steph knows her shit okay all right so are you ready for me to set the scene yes 1917 fine carriages dry goods phonographs and furs are all the rage for the average consumer people are hosting lawn parties and listening to a bunch of music by artists that these days no one's ever heard of. Ticket agents are competing with one another to offer the cheapest railway and steamship tickets. The term, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, is popularized by marketing campaigns of cereal companies. The Converse all-star Chuck Taylor basketball shoes is first produced. World War I is happening. The famous 
I Want You posters featuring Uncle Sam are plastered everywhere. And Tom Thompson paints the Jack Pine, one of Canada's most widely recognized and reproduced artworks. Tom Thompson was the most influential Canadian artist of the early 20th century. Many of his paintings, such as The West Wind and The Jack Pine, have become icons of Canadian culture. But on July 8, 1917, at the age of 39, Tom's body washed ashore in Algonquin Park, and what followed was a timeless intrigue about his death, resulting in not one, but two unsolved mysteries. Steph, before I dive in and give you Tom's story, I'm going to give you Tom's birthday and birth location. Couldn't find his birth time, so sorry about that. It happens, especially when you're looking at an older person. Mm-hmm. Not documented well. Um, so can you pull up his chart? He was born on August 5th. 1977 in Claremont, Ontario, and just tell us what you see. All right. So the first thing that I noticed when looking at this chart was that Tom Thompson is a Leo Mm. um, and has the sun in rulership. And as we don't have the birth time, unfortunately, we're not able to see things like the ruling planet determined by the time of birth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't know where his son is holding active. Um, I'm just going to jump in right here. So we got 90 kilometer winds going on right now. It's a little bit windy. So sorry about that. If there's anything in the background, uh, just ignore it like we are. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, we're not able to see exactly where the activity is taking place. So we're just looking at the day in general. Um, But he was born during Leo season. Um, Something that I noticed was Mercury changed signs that day. Um, It was in Leo in the morning. And sometime between 5 and 6 p.m. it entered Virgo. Mm -hmm. So this is a case of not really knowing what sign his Mercury is in. Um, Which is unfortunate. But the cool thing is, is I think once we get into this and we speculate a little bit about his life, and maybe we learn a little bit more, we might see something there. And for the people who don't know, why would it be important to know exactly? The reason that it's really, really cool to know is every planet has a ruler. Um, Every sign has a ruler. So when you look at a planet in said sign, in this case, if Mercury were to be in Leo, um, Leo was ruled by the sun. So Mercury would answer to the sun in Leo. This would make him a person who really answers to his own, his own motives. To what, what can I do to leave my mark on this earth? You know, what is my purpose here? Mm. Um, a Mercury and Leo is very focused on themselves and mm. reaching their goals. And we could interpret it one way with being especially a critical degree Mercury placement. If it were to be at the final degree of Leo before it entered Virgo, that's a very strong energy. And that specific degree of Leo is very noted in astrology, the final degree. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting to think it could be that. Um, And then Mercury and Virgo, of course, would be in rulership. And that would give him a sun in rulership in Leo and then a Mercury in rulership in Virgo as Mercury 
is um, at home in Virgo. So two different ways to look at it. Does his Mercury answer to his son or is Mercury answering to itself in, in its home sign of Virgo? And he kind of has those two planets answering to themselves at a bit of a standoff, giving him a bit of a more dynamic personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but what really adds to the mix is he also has Jupiter in Sagittarius, also in rulership. So we know for sure this man has two planets in rulership, both in fire signs. Uh, Jupiter is at home in Sagittarius. This makes a person who is very, very self-motivated and driven to do what they want. They often have a clear idea of their own um, success and what they want to do to accomplish their dreams and what they want to study, what they want to learn about. Um, It includes it makes me believe he would be very, very sure of himself that way. Um, And then there's also the possibility with his moon. Um, The moon was in Gemini that that day, but then it entered Cancer um, sometime between 8 and 9 p.m. So it's another unknown with his chart. It's interesting when you look at a day like this, sometimes there's not any significant movement that day. And then sometimes you have a case like this where the planet's moved quite a bit that day into different signs and you're not sure and you're kind of looking at it thinking I wonder what the case is with this guy what is where Mm -hmm. and if the moon did enter cancer he would have four planets in rulership and that would make a person who is just pulled in many different directions to do so many different things and yeah and it's really interesting to think about that so it could be somebody who is like so sure of themselves they have this like inner guidance that's like I know exactly what I want to put out there. I have this drive, this this thing, this dream that I want to accomplish. But where exactly do I put the energy and what exactly do I answer to to get it done? Right. Cool. And Very cool. You know for sure he has the two planets, Sun and Jupiter, in rulership. Mm-hmm. And really what that means is just that planner, planet answers to itself. It doesn't rely on the other planets as much to make a decision or come to a conclusion about what that planet rules over specifically. Okay. And so the more planets you have in a in a in rulership, um, the more self-assured you are in each of those areas. It can be a good thing. You can get a lot done, but also it creates a lot of inner conflict as you have these different poles inside of you that want to all be number one in a way. And you have to learn to manage that. So in different aspects of like, in this case, we're talking about Tom Thompson. He's like one of the m- most influential artists. So we know he is an artist. He's a painter. Right. And then you could have other aspects where it's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe he wanted to be like a family man. Right. Or like these other key parts of your life. You could be pulled, but then you have this strong force. Yes. And that is something that jumped out to me with his chart is um, with his Jupiter um, being in rulership, uh, it holds a square with an aspect in his chart. Um, something that I haven't mentioned yet about this day is Mars stationed retrograde that day in the sign of Pisces conjunct Saturn, um, which is really interesting and holds a lot of possibilities there. And as I don't know too much about him, I'm not sure what that could mean, mm-hmm. but there's a lot there to unpack. And I think that that square really shows, um, I think that he had a lot of potential and he probably was a person who was able to do a lot and had a lot at his disposal, maybe very talented in many ways. But at the end of the day, he wanted to 
do art or he wanted to be this painter and he didn't want to do something logical or practical or maybe reasonable in the eyes of other people. He wanted to do his own thing and mm -hmm. leave a mark on this earth in a unique way. I love it. So for people who aren't exactly familiar with like, oh, oh, what stationed retrograde? Huh? You know how like retrograde is one of those terms that is thrown around so often? Like, oh, we're all miserable today because Mercury's in retrograde. Yes, that's and, a like, big one. And it's like, okay, but like, you know, do you even know what that is? What does it mean? What does it mean? For real. So really what retrograde motion is, is back into the roots of astrology, if you look into it, before we really understood that the sun was the center of our little universe here, our galaxy, and we believed that the earth was the center of the universe, we interpreted it as the planets navigating around us. We saw these other um, light forms in the sky. We gave them names. We gave them traits, everything. And then something that we noticed was that certain times of the year, it appeared that these planets would come to a halt, would stop moving, and then start to move backwards. Um, and now we've advanced so much. We understand that the Earth is not the center of the universe. These planets are not moving perfectly around us. They're not stopping and beginning to move backwards. What's really happening is each planet in our solar system has its own unique rotation. We take certain days to travel, like the Earth, for example, will take 365 days to travel the sun, whereas uh, Mercury, I believe, only takes 88. Yeah, that sounds right. It's very quick. Well, it's like right there. Yeah. And so when it comes to Tom Thompson with this Mars retrograde, um, it's stationed that day in the sign of Pisces. Traditionally, Pisces is ruled by Jupiter. Um, modernly, Pisces is ruled by Neptune. So you can look at it both ways. Mm -hmm. I love looking at it both ways. Um, and so with a Mars retrograde, Mars rules over uh, lots of things like your energy levels, your sex drive, um, your anger. Mm -hmm. It's everything animalistic about you, all of your instincts and, you know, the raw parts of you. Um, what makes a person react when they're provoked or how does a person handle these difficult pressured situations? Um, how does a person generally feel throughout the day, like their energy levels? People with afflicted Mars struggle with low energy and with depression at times, that, that fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see things like that with Mars. So with, with a retrograde, a person can be more susceptible to um, Mars is the god of war. When you think about it, like with Greek mythology, Mars is the god mm -hmm. of war um, and is very ambitious, doesn't stop for anything, um, is a fighter. So when you invert Mars energy with Mars retrograde, that energy can be a little bit stifled. That person has to be a, a more careful or perhaps there is something, a reservation that they hold about really acting on their instincts, what oh. they really want. Maybe they have that voice of reason, Saturn, um, as Tom Thompson has Mars conjunct Saturn. Mm. Saturn is a very, very controlling voice. Saturn is can be an overbearing planet. Um, when you put the two together, it can create a very intense energy that yeah. a person needs to get out somehow and express. It can be very difficult. Kind of like a, a dynamic that's very claustrophobic. Yeah. A little bit tense. Yes. And the square with Jupiter shows a need to fight for freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and it shows a difficulty with luck, maybe. Like 
that person might feel like their luck runs out or like they have to work a lot harder in some ways to really get what they need. Um, it might come down to even just what was expected of them they did not do. Like Ooh. if you're born into certain circumstances or um, if you have obligations, Saturn being, Saturn is the bearer of karma. Saturn is very, very connected to um, where we lose out in life, like what what we are restricted from and where we have to work extra hard. It's so for Tom with Mars there, he had to work extra hard in some way. I'm just not sure exactly what he was making up for or what he was trying to find. It's really cool because even already hearing um, your interpretations of some of the things that you're seeing, I know as soon as you hear certain parts of the story, you'll be like, aha, that's where it fits in. Yeah. And another very interesting thing, again, coming back to that son in Leo was like, we don't know his birth time. So we're not really able to see the exacts of the chart, the specifics. Um, so I can't see all of the aspects that his son might hold to things such as his ascendant. For those who don't know what an ascendant is, um, it's determined by your time of birth and your place of birth. Um, the ascendant, you can think of it as the horizon. So whatever time of day you're born on, if you were born at sunrise, for example, your um, sun would be on the horizon of the chart. Um, if you haven't looked at a visual astrology chart, an actual birth chart, you likely won't know what I mean by that. But there is a visual chart you can look at that shows all the planets laid out and it maps the, the planets out for you. And so the time of birth determines where your sun falls. And yeah, so I can't see that, unfortunately, with Tom. We can only speculate. So I, I don't know exactly where his sun falls and what other aspects it makes. But what I do know is that he has a sun square Neptune aspect. Um, Neptune was in Taurus at this time of birth. And something that really jumped out to me about um, Tom Thompson's chart is the outer planets are really, really cool to look at like a generation. Yeah. And how someone fits into their time. And that kind of goes back to how the the outer planets moved much slower. Yes. So you have these large groups of people who share similar placements. Yes. And then like you're saying, the generational. So something I noticed about him was um, having Uranus and Leo, he has sun and Leo. They're not conjunct. Conjunct is when two planets are exactly aligned from Earth's perception in the sky. They would be right beside each other from our point of view. Um, they're not exactly conjunct. There is about 10 degrees between them, but I think it's interesting um, when you do have someone with a sun sign in a generational planet such as Uranus, that person can really embody um, that key part of that planet. So with the Leo and Uranus generation in these times, the 1870s, um, it was a time where there was a lot of revol revolution with inventions. There was a mm -hmm. lot of things for people to live a better life. Things were being urbanized. People were really changing how they lived and the leo and uranus time was very important um, when you look at it that way with how it was changing people's lives and helping them live live better and i think that um with neptune and taurus um it's interesting because this was still the victorian era yeah and neptune and taurus in my opinion is very symbolic of that um taurus rules over the finer things of life and in this time, a lot of people, if you didn't have money, you didn't really have anything. And then there was people who were living a lot more comfortably. And it was a yeah. really 
it was very materialistic. Very you, materialistic. You wore everything on your sleeve, literally. Yes. It was had, a time of beauty. Like yeah. it was so much about appearance and keeping Huge, up with it. And glamorous dresses. Right. Everyone was decked out in like crazy hats. You had yes. gloves, purses. Like you were head to toe, aesthetically pleasing and materialistic. Yes. Yet the industrial revolution was coming. And I think mm-hmm. that Leo and Uranus really showed that. That's so how cool. lives are really going to change. And I think that. Tom Thompson's chart here, when I looked at that Leo Sun square Neptune, Mm. I thought, what could that mean? Did this person have a conflicting relationship with the times they were in? Did they maybe not, maybe they didn't quite fit in or they just weren't fully happy with the times or was it, or was it a conflicting relationship? Neptune can be very disillusioning, very, it can make things hard to interpret and see clearly. So was there a cloud here? Mm -hmm. What was that energy? And I was really, really thinking about it and what that could mean for this person, this Leo sun, who doesn't have any other planetary aspects. It's only Neptune that's really influencing this sun in Leo that answers to itself. So you already have such a strong sun force here, such a strong life force. This person will have a very, very intense drive to succeed at whatever they want to. And then you bring in this Neptune placement um, and there's an astrologer named Judy Hall who has described Neptune as a higher octave of Venus. Um, she also has described Uranus as a higher octave of Mercury and Pluto as a higher octave of Mars. Um, and as we know, Venus rules over the arts, as I mentioned, and people who have a really strong aspects with their personal planets to Neptune, um, are able to draw upon great, like artistic knowledge and very spiritual knowledge as well. Often these people are very talented um, and get lost in that life. And that could be what it is. Um, I think that he was very, the square, square aspects. Um, I don't think I've mentioned what aspects are. Aspects are um, the way that planets are interacting with each other. So um, he has the sun in uh, Leo, as I said, and that visual chart that I talked about is where you can see and aspects will be mapped out for you. And the square, for example, is a 90 degree angle um, between two planets. So that means that the sun was at one corner of the sky and Neptune was over in that, that next corner, if you imagine a square, um, the two corners beside each other. Um, So those two planets are at a bit of a standoff. It creates a lot of friction. Um, The life force of the sun would be very determined to deal with this Neptune energy and do something with it, create something with it. Um, And I think that that Leo Uranus energy shows to how this person revolutionized and did something very amazing with whatever that Neptune drive was that they felt, which seems very artistic. Mm -hmm. And they would make their mark. If a Leo is the leader, they make... A significant mark. Do you have any other key aspects you saw? Um, anything like really vital? Anything that stands out a lot that could really speak to the type of person he was or dominated by or anything like that? I think that um, he also has a strong Venus presence with Venus and Virgo perfectly trine. Um, a trine is a 120 degree angle. Um, again, it will form a triangle. Um, they create a perfect trine. A trine is the most free-flowing energy. It creates 
a natural ability with no effort, nothing involved. He has a perfect Venus-Neptune trine, which is a beautiful aspect in a chart. Mm-hmm. It is a chart of someone who is not only physically beautiful, oh, and it the is known for, loved him, apparently. Um, but is this is in Virgo. So this is a mental thing as well. He's very, very articulate, was probably incredibly focused and and just very artistic. You really see that this person would be focused on a calling um, and that Neptune influence. I can't help but think it's spiritual in a way, like that he was a little bit different maybe, that the Neptune friction there, I just can't help but think he did not quite fit into to his surroundings maybe, or just there was something there that made him feel different, especially with the uh, Mars-Saturn conjunction. Again, there's something there Um the malefic planets, Mars and Saturn, having that conjunction, it really speaks to me. And it can be very dark energy. Mars rules over everything horrible and violent that happens in one's life, unfortunately. And when you have such a strong aspect like that, it does make you wonder what possibly, not to be dark, some people get a little bit, you know, freaked out about that but it's true mars rules over violence and anger we all know that even in modern astrology yeah and in ancient astrology it's a lot more gory yeah but it is what it is um and saturn also rules over chronic illnesses and that conjunction with mars makes me think what chronic what was chronic about your life what did you suffer with what was it that followed you that you it's very interesting and it could Mm -hmm. have been an undoing for him in a way Oh my so, goodness, you're hitting something on the head. It is it's so interesting. Cool. That was the most strongest aspect was that Saturn-Mars conjunction. Station retrograde that day is so significant. And it really, it creeped me out a little bit. So, and also, oh, I forgot to mention this one is, um, he has Mercury conjunct the south node. Oh, you're definitely going to have to explain south node. The nodes are a karmic point in astrology. Um, they are connected to the soul. So the North Node has been connected to um, your destiny um, in this life, your future, um, what you do in this life and how it impacts your soul and your soul path. So some people do believe that if you have planets on these points, they really, really pull you in your soul direction and speak to you differently. These people are very, very open in a different way. Mm. Um, Almost like a fate thing. Like right. you wouldn't. Even they are. They're you... the points of fate. Yeah. Yes. So they are connected with your fate. And the North Node uh, pulls you to your fate, they say. And the South Node has been connected with past lives. Um, so the North Node is creating our purpose, creating our future. And we're supposed to strive for our North Node, they say. The North Node, you can look at that point in your chart and see, okay, where is my, where, what is my purpose? What do I have to do to feel fulfilled inside? And I can, when I die, I can be happy mm-hmm. and know that I at least completed my soul mission. Yeah. Um, the North Node is the point that you look to. So people who have a really strong node activity often have a really, really strong calling, but he doesn't have North Node activity with something conjunct there. It's conjunct the South Node. So it's opposite his North Node. The South Node is the point of past lives. Mm-hmm. Um, some people take it really negatively, but it's, it is a really, really beautiful thing because it represents things that you inherited with you, that you're born with, gifts, skills, things that you just know. So like and with you- Mercury, it's a, it's a wit, it's an intelligence. It's Mercury rules over your hands. 
I think he was probably really, really good at doing a lot of things, a lot of skills. He just probably knew how to do some things Mm -hmm. and was so good at it. He could have even been on the head. Some people are like different and they they know how to do things when they're born or they know those are self-node people who are born with really, really strong senses of self and often carry that with them. And with Mercury, Mercury is a planet of communication, as we know. Um, it rules over our voices. It rules over our decision making, um, rules over mathematics, it rules over architecture. It rules over teaching. It rules over a lot of things, how we communicate. And I think he communicated very interestingly. And this aspect shows he brought something with him that he used to his advantage, whatever that is that he had. Um, but it's something special. And something also is Mercury rules over small vessels like bikes, uh, cars. There were no cars at this time, so it would be small boats and, and bicycles maybe if they were invented yet. Um, uh, that He could have bad luck with those because canoes? the south node. Yeah, those would be canoes. Any type of small transport that you would use just to get around your neighborhood or from one place to another that you could, in modern terms, anywhere you could drive. Something that was pertinent to your everyday life. Yes, not a plane, not somewhere that you would, like a huge shift that you'd go travel across the ocean. That's Jupiter. Rolls over big vessels. You've got like the carriages. Yes. You're using your canoe, your paddle boat, your horse. Mm -hmm. Does a horse count? Because it's alive yeah that would count as back then as your you would look to mercury wow so um with the south node um the thing is because it there is this karmic aspect with the past lives you have to be really really careful at whatever you inherited you know whatever you're given you you do the right thing with it is is the idea um so there is a connotation of of luck like a fortune mm-hmm. with the nodes as and and then where they're placed placements are how it speaks to something i'd love to know where it is in this chart like where exactly it is and well i mean some of the stuff you're saying in relation to this especially the small vessels thing is like it's just crazy i know a person and who has mercury conjunct the south node who has gotten in seven car accidents and they have horrible luck and it's a trait of the south node is you have to be very very careful with whatever is concerning that planet because you have karma with it so you, you're redoing that part of your life in a mm-hmm. way. You can think of it as. And so you have an extra advantage. Um, but you have to be very careful with that. Yes. Um, and it doesn't mean that someone does anything wrong if something, but it's just astrologically speaking, the nodes are believed to have a little bit of a boost that way with your fortune and your soul path. Mm-hmm. And the south node is the point you be that you have inherited things with you and they are key in your life, key in your soul path. It will be a determiner for you if you make a decision on a cert- at a certain time. The nodes can be a the soul. It's the, your soul. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercury is a, the most dynamic planet. So to have such a strong connection to Mercury, it, it represents a very dynamic person who probably had a tough time making up their minds sometimes or knowing exactly what they wanted or what to do with all this, the abilities that they mm-hmm. had and the options at their disposal. Oh, and the fact that he's so mutable, you know, mutable energy with the Jupiter and Sagittarius and the Mars and Saturn. Mutable is um, the mode that a planet can be in. There's Mm -hmm. mutable, fixed, and cardinal signs. There's 12 signs can be split into three categories that way, four signs in each. And um, the mutable signs are Pisces, Sagittarius, um, Gemini, and Virgo. 
And the ancients referred to them as double-bodied because of the amount of energy and skill and the ability to get so much done and to like hyper-focus. Yeah, you almost have like one part of you that is like twice as much of everything. Yeah, like the driven, here we go, we got shit to do. And then the other part that's like, great, you feel driven, I can put pen to paper. Yeah. That's so cool. And so I think he had a lot, a lot there. Yeah, and then having all of these other aspects you're talking about in his placements where it's like, I feel internally exactly what I have to do, my purpose, I have this passion, I'm going to do it. And then this drive. Yep. I incline to think that he had a Gemini moon that answered to um, a critical degree, uh, Leo Mercury. Beautiful. There is a possibility it entered Virgo, but... I don't know. I can see him having a day chart, like being born in the day and having a sun high in the sky just by how well known he was and Mm -hmm. is. Um, I don't know how famous he was in his life. Um, So well, might change my opinion on where the sun would be positioned in the chart. But I I just feel like he'd be born during the day with a Gemini moon. I understand why you think that based on everything that you're explaining, what, what you see there. Um, I think that if it was a different time, if um, circumstances weren't happening, like the war, for example, right, he would have been much more well known, but outer influences totally kind of harshed his vibe. Kind of interesting. S- kind of squashed. That Saturn suppression, perhaps. Yes. Outside influences you can't control. Yes. So even in a time where people had no no money had little means to indulge in things like art which is what saturn rules over debt and lack of missing out not having anything so even in this time when people are missing out they don't have anything they don't have this money to put towards finer things like a beautiful piece of art going to a museum seeing an exhibit he was still known especially locally um he did have a little bit of notoriety if there wasn't these suppressive factors, he for sure would have been much bigger. Right. So even in a time that is so suppressive, he was known. But interesting. Mm-hmm. Shall we get into it? I sure can. Unless there's any other. I think I touched on. I think I touched on the main things that I noted. Even from what you said, I heard quite a few things where I. I'm seeing it in his life. Oh, one more thing. No. That I forgot. <laughs> I just want to say his um, his Neptune is really, really close to Chiron. Um, Chiron's not a planet. It's an asteroid. Yes. <laughs> it rules over. Um, it is a point of growth in our life, like where we are caused the most pain and where we have the most to grow from. Um, and where is that? It's conjunct his Neptune and trine his Venus. And I concluded when I was looking at that beautiful aspect and how lovely it is (laughs) that it would bring him a lot of pain is what I concluded. Oh my goodness. Again, Um, here we go. That's what I wanted to add. That's good. That's actually a very good thing to add because this man's was emo. He had a lot of pain in a lot of ways. Some things weren't his fault. You know, he was just a little sensitive. So it's a good thing to add. Good thing to know. Okay. Are we ready to get into Thomas John Thompson? I think so. And hear his whole life story? 
And for me to talk and talk about Tom Thompson? I'm so excited after spending time with this chart to fill yeah. in these blanks. It's really cool because I think uh, like I was talking to you on the phone the other day and I was telling you how like you listen to other podcasts or something and you're like, you hear these hosts being like, oh, you know, I just really got to know them. I spent all this time with them and I just really feel for them. I feel like I know them. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God, get real. It's true. It's true. And you I'm spend sorry time. I judged yep. you people. It's true. You spend all this time with them. You research them. You want to know about them. If you spend a week literally in their life, in all their business. So, yeah, you do get close. Now, using the essentially biography and their life and what people think and have said about them, put it with their birth chart, which is all of their really cool inner workings. You can paint this huge full picture and maybe answer some of these wild questions we have. Especially in this case of Tom Thompson, where we don't have one mystery, we have two mysteries. Thomas John Thompson was of Scottish descent and was the sixth of ten children. Although he was born in the town of Claremont in Pickering Township, he grew up on a farm near Leith outside of Owen Sound. His father was a farmer, but the farm wasn't very successful. His father chose to plant like flowers and herbs instead of cash crops. <laughs> so it wasn't like the people around him were like, bro, that's not a it's not a farm. You don't have like corn and wheat. You're yeah, growing, what, where are the crops? You're growing flowers, dude. My dude, you're not making any money. What is the point of your land? You can't sell to bees. No. That's what they said, actually. Direct quote. Direct quote. John Thompson's neighbors said, dude, you can't sell to bees. They're not going to buy that shit. <laughs> <laughs> On top of only planting like flowers and herbs, he would often abandon his chores to spend time in nature. He liked to go fishing, hunting, hiking, stuff like that. He wasn't really into this whole farm situation. His, Interesting. Mm -hmm. His father is better known as a naturalist. Naturalism actually runs in Tom's family. Dr. William Brody, which is cousin to Tom's grandmother. No idea exactly how cousins work. So Dr. William Brody, cousin to Tom's grandmother was one of the finest naturalists, and he was the director of the biological department at the ROM. And what exactly is a naturalist? Oh, I'm so happy you asked, Steph. A naturalist, or, or naturalism, can mean different things depending on the context. Uh, but in this case, it refers to any person who studies the natural world. So naturalist makes observations of the relationships between like organisms and their environment. Okay. As well as how those relationships can change over time. Interesting. So this was interesting that this was around back then. I wonder what that job was like. Because what kind of science were they like? What kind of tools were they using? Literally walking around and studying with their own eyes and hands. It's very cool. Of like, oh, wow. See the way the wind blows here. How could that have an effect on the tree it's blowing through and 
the insects that would normally live in that tree and the birds and stuff like literally walking around observing what is around them let's study it let's see the impact these things have on one another yeah and then you'd usually in this case for William Brody since he worked in the biological department at the ROM he would be studying like plants and stuff so he would like take specimens uh study bugs plants whatever just to kind of see really the inner workings of it their relationship they had to one another so I mean naturalism can mean different things but in this context that's what it means. Okay, Let's cool. Let's study the world and the organisms within it and the relationship the two have. In Tom's early adulthood, he spent a lot of time with Uncle William because it was his grandmother's cousin. He was so much older. So it wasn't Makes like... Makes sense. Yeah, when you think of like, oh, my cousin, you think of like a, a, like your bro coming over. He's like a year younger than you or something. It's not like, in this case. Not in this case. So he called him Uncle William. And Uncle William was actually mourning the loss of his only son. And this son had died when his canoe overturned on the Assiniboine River. So he was Very in a sad. state. And Tom was like, yeah, I'm in my early adulthood. Let me come spend some time with you. And he actually really, really enjoyed being around William. William had really cool stories of the wild and beautiful Algonquin Park which William was very passionate about because he actually helped establish it. And William was incredibly important to Tom, and Tom thought of him as a mentor who had information and was able to guide him spiritually, philosophically, artistically. It sounds like he was a mentor. That's exactly mm -hmm. the vibe I was getting from what you were describing. And they like formed such a quick bond because... William was already in such a like state over losing his own son. Yeah. So then they spent all this time together. Um, they were helping each other in a way. Exactly. Obviously, William has all of these cool things to offer Tom in regards to like the naturalism, studying nature, all of that stuff. Tom can learn a lot from that while William likes to teach about it. So they did absolutely balance each other and give a lot to one another. I'm already so interested by this. Do you hear anything so far that you're like, yes, mm, interesting. your first two sentences, I heard something <laughs> that I wish I mentioned because I was onto something and I like that Saturn Mars conjunction has so many possibilities. Oh, but the farming. Well, Saturn rules agriculture and the Mars conjunction shows well, yeah. a rejection. And Saturn is really speaks to how you were raised. It rules over your parents, those who made rules for you as Saturn is authority. Mm -hmm. So it shows your authority figures and Mars shows a really conflicting relationship. That's why I thought he didn't live up to certain expectations and he didn't want to do that farm. And the agriculture connection with Saturn and all that is really interesting. So I didn't even mention that he didn't want to do the farm, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't want to work on the farm. He wanted to get out of Owen Sound. He didn't want to be there. He didn't want to work on this farm that wasn't even a cash crop. Yeah. He wanted to leave. So Tom was brought up in a down-to-earth and creative family. He learned to play several musical instruments. He sang in the church choir. And him and his siblings spent tons of time drawing and painting. He was an excellent swimmer and had a passion for fishing. His father taught him how to make lures based on the insects fish at that specific time we're eating that's really cool 
Tom was withdrawn from high school for one year due to a respiratory problem often described as weak lungs or inflammatory rheumatism. Interesting, Mars rules over inflammation. Saturn is chronic conditions. I was going to say, it was about the Mars, how it can kind of maybe not lead, but have a hand in like an undoing and very much so and uh, kind of govern how you will turn out health wise and stuff like that. Yeah. So he did have to take this year off from school. Uh, There wasn't an official diagnosis. Literally, like I said, just were like, you got weak lungs. (laughs) So he took a year off school It afforded him plenty of time to explore the woods near his home uh, where he developed a deep appreciation for nature. Tom and each of his nine siblings received an inheritance of $2,000 from their paternal grandfather in 1898. Okay. 1898. $2,000. What's that worth today? 50000 No. More. No. Mm-hmm. How much? $85,578.63. That's crazy. Uh, a portion of this money went to membership fees for the ancient order of foresters. Okay. Yeah, I got it. I had to Google that. Ancient order of foresters. I was like, oh, is this like some sort of nonprofit that just like really loves planting? It sounds trees. like a club. <laughs> it's like an insurance company. Okay. I What do they do? It's like you you pay membership fees and it m- kind of allows you to be Entitled to different policies, like life insurance policy, savings bonds, stuff like that. It's This not, is definitely some old time yes. stuff. It's still, as far as I know, a thing. It's not called the Ancient Order of okay. Foresters. It's called like the Foresters <laughs> It should Society. be. It should be called that, though. Why not? But like, it sounds so cool. It sounds, it like, does. It sounds like you're a Freemason. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> but the then, Ancient Order. What are we playing? Uh, Valhalla? Valhalla? <laughs> Assassin's Creed? So I looked it up and it was like, yeah, you know, if you want some life insurance, you just become a member of the ancient order of foresters. Sounds good. It was disappointing. I'll be, I'll be honest. It was disappointing. I thought it was so much cooler. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Tom's out here trying to make good decisions. He got a membership to make sure he had a good life insurance policy and, and like benefits, like health benefits, stuff like that. He used some of the money to start an apprenticeship at an iron foundry in Owen Sound, owned by a close friend of his father. So again, you're working in a foundry. You are using your hands. Let's get back to Mercury. Well, and uh, (laughs) actually, iron, believe it or not, planets rule over substances. Do you want to know which planet rules over uh, iron? It's Mars. Oh, I was swallowing my beer and I was going to say Mars. (laughs) It is Mars. Sorry, Dyson. Sorry, my levels went real high there because I screamed. Would you believe it? So interesting. I knew that this Saturn-Mars conjunction so far, everything you're saying. And I know everyone has these aspects and everyone touches iron in their life and might go fishing in their life. But sometimes it impacts people differently. You know, that's all. Absolutely. (laughs) I loved how bitchy that sounded while being so informative. (laughs) Not just so you know. Y'all, like, guys, like, don't come at me. But, like, iron, I get it. Everyone touches it. I know you might be rolling your eyes, but... (laughs) Don't. This is legitness. <laughs> legitness. Shit. Sorry. Did my levels peak again? I gotta take it easy with this microphone. 
<laughs> screaming at it, giving it a rough go. So he worked in that iron foundry. Uh, it was run and owned by a close friend of his father. He didn't get along with the foreman, though, so he quit only after eight months. Three years later, he confided, this is kind of more of a side note, but three years later, after he quit this foundry, he actually confided through a letter to one of his friends from the foundry. Uh, his name was Alan Ross. That quitting the foundry was one of the most regrettable decisions of his life up until that point. And he often thought of going back into trades. Hmm. I think that to him, it was kind of like a, if you were in the trades, it was kind of like a guaranteed way to make a living absolutely it was the way that the world was going at the time and going back on what you were talking about with kind of how this is like an industrial revolution yeah things are being urbanized like you were talking about if you're a tradesman especially in an iron foundry in an industrial revolution you are guaranteed money you are guaranteed success that way yeah so for sure for someone who was more sensitive and leaning into a world of business and art he had written this letter and said, like, fuck, I fucked up. I should have stayed there. So after working in the foundry, he used more of his inheritance money to pay for enrollment at the Canada Business College in Chatham, Ontario in 1901. After graduating at the end of 1901, he briefly traveled to Winnipeg, but then left Canada completely to go to Seattle where he attended the Acme Business College, which was a school established by his eldest brother, George, and one of their cousins, F.R. McLaren. That's pretty interesting. It is, right? Yeah. He's got a brother who's, like, super dedicated, super yeah. into education. Was, um, speaking of, like, not really digging the farm, kind of wanting to get away, George, from the brief things I read about him, seemed to also be in that mindset of, like, this farm is a dead end. I don't want to be stuck here. Business revolution is kind of the way we're going. Yeah. So for he sure. and his cousin fucked off to the States and established a whole co college. So uh, Tom enrolled there. He studied during the day and at night he worked as a lift operator at the <laughs> litter. <laughs> he worked as a lift operator there. At the Dillers Hotel one night after a shift. Quote. He was taking a shortcut home when suddenly there was a there was a man came up behind him. And the first thing. <laughs> it was a man. Listen. When suddenly there was a man came up behind him. Like, God damn it. 1901. Third time's a charm. Quote. He was taking a shortcut home when suddenly there was a man came up behind him. And the first thing he knew, he was looking down the barrel of a revolver and told to come across. He held his hands up on the word and kept them up while the holdup man, who, Tom said, was quite young fella, frisked him for a watch and for four or five dollars. Tom was far the cooler of the two and remarked to the man who was robbing him that he must be new to the business as he trembled so violently. Yes, said the bandit, you are my first. And then having secured everything of value Tom had on his person, he turned and bolted. One of the boys said to him when he got home, And what did you do, Tommy? Tom got up and in his own comical way put his hands up and shook till his knees knocked together. 
So even though Buddy was held up at gunpoint, he's like, what is this, your first time? Like He's just so cool and collected. He doesn't even care. He doesn't that even care. That paints such an interesting picture of him. And then he comes home. Hey, guys, guess what happened to me? Yo, I, I, I got robbed. I had a revolver in my face. And the kids are like, the fuck? Are you, you all right? Do? And he's like, he just makes fun of him. He just makes fun of the guy that robbed him. To his face as well. Like The nerve. This guy, like Tom, man. <laughs> he's just not afraid of anything, I guess. That's really interesting. I know. And then, it, like, stuff like this. Like, he had a gun put in his face. And he was frisked and robbed in the middle of the night. And he did care. But then in other times in his life, you'll see how actually sensitive he is. So it's just so bizarre. It's just a weird dynamic. Pisces is so sensitive. Um, something I think is really interesting is, uh, again, we come back to Mars. And Mars rules over robbery. Mars rules over robbery? Yeah. So you can look <laughs> at Mars in a, ch- or, uh, a chart and um, robberies can be depicted by the planet Mars. So... I'm really seeing in his life that the planet Mars, this conjunction that he has, seems to have a lot of influence over him. Mm -hmm. He experiences a lot of things that rule over the realm of Saturn and Mars. I wonder if his ruling planet could be one of those. And that's why it's such a strong influence. Or if it's just in a certain place in his chart. Exactly. That is so open and susceptible. I bet as we talk more about his life, you will probably... Fill in some of those holes or connect the dots or whatever it is, I should say. Connect the dots. And the chart ruler is determined by the time Mm -hmm. of birth, by the ascendant, Mm -hmm. that horizon I was talking about before. And that is very important to know to get those like precise placements. And in this case, we don't have that. So we've got to speculate or fill in the dots with all the information we have. In Seattle, Tom found work and room and board with Charlie Maring the proprietor of the commercial art company Maring and Blake. Tom was employed as a pen artist, draftsman, and etcher, and mainly produced business cards, brochures, and posters. Until one day, quote, Tom was sent over to the Seattle Engraving Company, Maring and Blake's strongest competitor. While there, waiting to see Mr. Adams, he made a pencil sketch on the counter. Mr. Adams when he saw it, asked Tom how much money he was getting and when told, said that he would give $10 per week more if he would go to work for him instead. Tom accepted and went to work at once, but kept on boarding and rooming at Mr. Maring's house, void of any kind of fear. So again, with this attitude that Tom has. He just doesn't really care at the end of the day about, you know, that that Leo shining through strong though at the end of the day he does what he wants Mm -hmm. he'll listen he'll consider but he'll do what he wants he will do what's best for him what will what will advance my career what will make me the happiest what will make me the most comfortable it will be this okay cool don't want to hurt other people but i also want to come out on top it's his life at the end of the day it's It's a livelihood yes this is my livelihood don't fuck with me exactly i just thought again like bro that's very funny (laughs) Come on. People in Tom's life said that he looked forward to settling down in Seattle and focusing on advancing his career and hoping one day to be married. It's speculated that he abruptly quit his job at the Seattle Engraving Company 
and returned home because of an incident involving his brief summer girlfriend, Alice Eleanor Lambert. Tom proposed to Alice, but she laughingly rejected him. Tom was considered highly sensitive, and this hurt him so much that he abandoned his plans to settle down in Seattle and returned home in the fall of 1904. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying and reading like these quotes about how like he's pretty brazen. He doesn't care as long as he can advance his career. He's happy to take a job at the competitor company while still rooming with his old boss. (laughs) But I mean, it would be really hurtful to be laughingly rejected when you propose to someone. But like he's so sensitive that he abandoned his job, his new career, everything. It's a little bit self-centered. For sure. Like, like an ego ego type. Yes. A, a hurt ego. Oh, God. I failed in this one regard with my summer girlfriend. Yeah, I didn't get what I wanted. It didn't turn out mm-hmm. how I planned or how I wished it would. Uh, here's a little, like, fun fact. Alice went on to become a writer, and in her 1934 self-published novel, Women Are Like That, she describes a young woman who was taken with an artist but when he proposed, she refused him and later regretted it completely. Sounds a little bit inspired by real life. Exactly. And um, allegedly or reportedly, she was a lot younger than him and they were only together for a summer. How old was he at the time then? So this was in 1904. Okay. So he would have been... 27. Mm Mm-hmm. And... I don't know how old she was, but she was apparently younger. Okay. So she, it could have been, maybe they weren't on the same page. It was so, it was a brief relationship. It was more of kind of like a summer fling. She could have been 10 years younger, still trying to figure out her life. And so maybe she just was immature and was like, dude, no. Yeah. And And as she got older, realized what she missed out on. Mm -hmm. And also this was published uh, in 1934. And uh, like I mentioned in the beginning, he passed away in 1917. So like could have could have been a lot of reasons she mentioned this or all of the time to reflect on it and stuff like that. Idealized it. Exactly. In the summer of 1905, Tom moved to Toronto and got a job at the photo engraving firm Leg Brothers. During this next brief chapter, Tom kept busy by reading poetry going to the theater, concerts, and sporting events in his free time. But he was described by his friends as, quote, periodically erratic and sensitive with fits of unreasonable despondency, end quote. It's reported he drank often, and sometimes he would consume so much that he'd become morose and up and leave his friends for home. So if they were, like, out at, like, a pub or something drinking, he would, like, down them much faster than the people he was with. And yeah. then become like depressed and then be like, you know what? This isn't doing for doing it for me. And then like peace out. And people were like, yo, we're having a good time. <laughs> what? He spent some money on art supplies, always with the intention of advancing his skill set. But he spent most of it on expensive clothes, fine dining and tobacco. He loved tobacco. He like anyone in his life will, uh, can't recall a time they didn't see him with his pipe. And anyone who knew him was like, Tom smoking. And it's definitely Hudson's Bay tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> he loved it. I really did. His trademark. Must be the Gemini moon. Well, <laughs> the lungs. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. God damn it. 
Everything comes back to astrology. <laughs> In 1906, he enrolled in night classes at the Ontario College of Art and received his only formal art training from a British artist named William Cruikshank. In 1909, Tom joined Grip Limited, Canada's leading graphic design company known for introducing Art Nouveau, metal engraving, and the four-color press to Canada. The director at Grip, Albert Robson, recalled that Tom made friends slowly, but eventually found similar interest to his co-workers. Some of these co-workers would go on to become members of the Group of Seven. The remaining members of the future Group of Seven hung out at the Arts and Letters Club, a space that provided an informal environment for the artistic community of Toronto. And it was at this club that the senior artist at GRIP, so where Tom worked, J.E.H. McDonald introduced Tom to Lauren Harris, the eventual leading member of the Group of Seven. And it's commonly believed that Tom was a part of the Group of Seven, but Tom actually died before the official formation of the group. He did, however, have a significant influence on them. His unique artistic style would eventually be adopted by the Group of Seven, and it's what brought them national prominence. Although 1909 brought him a good job and great friends, it brought great sadness as well. Uncle William died and his girlfriend's brother died, so she left Toronto to go take care of her nieces and nephews. And Tom deeply mourned both losses, but losing Uncle William, who was like his mentor, was very hard on him. Be very, very difficult. And like we were saying before, they found so much in each other. They really leaned on each other in different ways, but were such big parts of one another's life. Yeah. And it sounds a little bit like Tom had a hard time finding people who really understood him mm -hmm. or could listen to him and really hear him out or maybe see through the behavior that some people considered erratic. Mm -hmm. Maybe this guy listened to him and oh, saw him as a son. For sure. And yes. Yeah. Seeing him as be a, a son. big loss. And I look at... Um, the isolation that he might have felt um, with that Saturn position, the strength of his Saturn in the chart and Saturn rules over isolation and loneliness. I think he might have felt that really strongly, especially with those afflictions to Jupiter. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard to be optimistic, Jupiter being the planet of optimism yes. and hope. It might have been really hard for him. He had to pull on a lot of strength. Um, Absolutely. That is actually seen quite a bit. Yeah. For sure, the trying to find optimism. And the erratic behavior with a water Mars, Pisces Mars, very responsive, very emotional. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to control that. He probably tried his whole life, though. There's a huge element of control there with Saturn, a desperation to control that. I think that's putting it very well. If you're familiar with Tom Thompson, you know that Algonquin Park is synonymous with his name. He would live in Toronto during the winter and spend the rest of the year in the park. Typhoid was rampant in Toronto in May of 1912, so Tom left the city behind to visit Algonquin Park for the first time, accompanied by his grip colleague, Harry Jackson. It was during this first trip that he acquired his first set of sketching equipment. So like, even though he was always into art, sketching equipment refers to like the full set. So you know how like... You can lay in bed and you have like that little breakfast table and you could put like a tray and all your food and stuff on it. So it's like the sketching yeah. equipment is kind of like that, 
where it offers like a lap desk. So you have somewhere to to just quickly pop up and situate and work off of. So he purchased that for this first trip to Algonquin. Although he liked sketching and painting, he didn't take it seriously at this point, often claiming he didn't think anyone would ever take any of his work seriously. Speaking about this trip with Tom, Harry wrote, quote, Tom was never understood by lots of people, was very quiet, modest, and a gentle soul. He cared nothing for social life, but with one or two companions on a sketching and fishing trip, with his pipe and Hudson, t- Hudson Bay tobacco going, he was a delightful companion, end quote. Remember old uh, Albert Robson, the director of Grip? Well, he left Grip for a design firm called Rouse and Man in the fall of 1912, and when Tom returned from this trip to Algonquin Park, he joined Albert as well. Tom was introduced to James McCallum through J.E.H. McDonald. McCallum would become Tom's biggest patron, offering endless support and buying many of his works. McCallum eventually persuaded Tom to leave Rouse and Man and begin his painting career. Approximately a year later, McCallum introduced Tom to A.Y. Jackson, the eventual founding member of the Group of Seven, and Tom's artistic mentor. McCallum recognized their talents and offered to cover their expenses for one year if they committed themselves to painting full-time. They accepted the offer, and Tom began traveling with his colleagues, mainly to the wilderness of Ontario, which was to become a major source of inspiration for him. Tom experienced self-doubt and could be painfully shy about showing his sketches. He had no opinion of his work and would even throw burnt matches at his paintings. But a turning point in his career came in 1914 when the National Gallery of Canada began to acquire his paintings. Although the money was not enough to live on, the recognition was unheard of for an unknown artist. Tom lived in Algonquin Park from spring to autumn, at times serving as a fishing guide to the visitors of Moat Lodge, located on the north end of Canoe Lake and run by husband and wife Shannon and Annie Fraser. In the winter... He lived in Toronto where he shared a studio and living quarters in the Studio One building with A.Y. Jackson starting in January 1914. It was at this time that Tom finally decided to become a full-time artist. He shadowed Jackson, who opened his eyes to sparkling, vibrant colors. He learned that his paintings don't have to be photographically true, they should convey emotion, which bright and bold colors can do. So Jackson taught him how to expertly mix paints and do brushwork. Lauren Harris described Tom's strange working hours as such. Quote, when he was in Toronto, Tom rarely left the shack in the daytime, and even then, only when it was absolutely necessary. He took his exercise at night. He would put on his snowshoes and tramp the length of the Rosedale rav- Ravine and out into the country and return before dawn. End quote. Tom made his way up north in April 1914. In July, World War I began, and Tom's friends and colleagues said he brooded upon the war often. He didn't serve, and the reason why it's highly debated by the people in his life. Some insist he would have fought, and others are certain he would never have offered his service. One theory is that he was turned down after multiple attempts to enlist, probably because of his poor health record is why he would be turned down, because in his youth he had those, like, quote-unquote, weak lungs. Yeah, if you can't carry all the equipment and stuff and 
actually keep up, I guess you can't do it. Exactly. And then another theory is that he was turned down because he had flat feet. But I don't know if that's true or not. I couldn't confirm it anywhere. Weird. Tom's, uh, one of Tom's sisters suggested that he was a pacifist and he hated war. And if he was accepted, he would never kill anyone, but would rather help in a hospital. So this um, information comes from a supposed uh, letter when they were writing each other that Tom would often write about the war, talk to people about the war. And she says that in a letter that they had written to one another, he said he would enlist and it would be to help in this way in the background of like working at a hospital or at a medical camp or something like that. In September, James McCallum's year of financial support was over and Tom's financial future was uncertain. He briefly considered applying as a park ranger, but gave up on that idea when he learned of all the red tape and the fact it can take months to be approved. So instead, he returned to Toronto to spend the winter. Sound very patient. No, he isn't at all. Nope. He's like, it won't happen immediately. And on my time and how I want it, I'm out. This doesn't work for me. Yeah. He went back to Algonquin Park in April 1915 with the money he made from selling his paintings over the winter, mainly bought by James McCallum, and helped with guided fishing tours out on the various lakes for extra cash. In November, he returned to Toronto and moved into a shack behind the Studio One building that Lauren Harris and James McCallum fixed up for him, renting it for $1 a month. So in today's money, it's like 21 bucks. So it's like this big building and it was called the studio one building and it had uh living quarters and all of these different artist rooms um studios (laughs) so you could rent space in them and on top of that you would rent the space to live in but it was expensive and tom wasn't making that much money and obviously he he worked so closely with all these these men who would eventually be in the group of seven and they didn't want to see him just kind of left in the dust. So they spent the summer while he was in Algonquin building a little shack so that he could still be on the property, be with them, work with them, but wasn't pressured to pay the high rent to stay in the building. So instead they were like, here, we built you a shack. Just pay us a dollar a month and you can stay here. So these friends he had, were very good to him. It's very, very convenient for him. Mm -hmm. His friends saw Tom being more productive than they'd ever seen. It was during this productive period that he produced his most famous works, The Jack Pine and the West Wind. Patron saint James McCallum knew that the war was making it tough for the artists of Studio One to make a living, so he commissioned Tom, A.Y. Jackson, and Arthur Lismer, who was another eventual member of the Group of Seven, to paint a mural on some panels for his cottage. By March of 1916, he had more of his paintings exhibited, but they were received with mixed reviews. Margaret Fairbairn, Fair, oh God, Margaret Fairbairn, F-A-I-R-B-A-I-R-N. Fairbairn, that sounds right. Okay, good. Margaret Fairbairn. Of the Toronto Daily. You know what? Who cares? Because she was rude. (laughs) So this Margaret lady of the Toronto Daily Star wrote, quote, 
Mr. Tom Thompson shows a fondness for intense yellows and orange and strong blue, altogether a fearless use of violent color, which can scarcely be called pleasing, end quote. Quite rude. Very rude. <laughs> Speaking of, of violent, use of violent, fearless boldness, Margaret, rude. But a more favorable take was written in the Canadian Courier by painter Estelle Kerr, describing Thompson as, quote, one of the most promising of Canadian painters who follows the Impressionist movement and his work reveals himself to be a fine colorist, a clever technician, and a truthful interpreter of the Northland in its various aspects, end quote. So it was a much more thought-out review. Obviously, she sat with the work and was like, here's what I take away, and it's, it's something. Yeah, it actually seems to consider the artwork not a face value deal of like, ugh, yeah. it's so orange. I don't like it. What's orange? Ugh. It's like, hey, I sat down with this. I felt something from it. It's very nice. And I agree, Estelle. I think his paintings are very lovely. In April of 1916, Tom went back to Algonquin Park and worked as a fire ranger, but he didn't like it because ranging and painting didn't mix as he was too busy patrolling to spend any time painting. He wrote to James McCallum, quote, have done very little sketching this summer as I find that the two jobs don't fit in. When we are traveling, two go together, one for the canoe and the other the pack. And there's no place for a sketch outfit when you're fire ranging. It would be great for two artists or whatever you call us, but the natives can't see what we paint for. We are not fired yet, but I am hoping to be put off right away. End quote. So he didn't even want to be doing this. He just wanted the money that it brought. Yeah. He didn't want to be fire ranging. He didn't care about it. He was hoping that he could get a paycheck out of it while still fulfilling his own intention. He met a woman named Winifred Winnie Trainer at Canoe Lake where her family had a cottage, and they began dating. Winnie lived primarily in Huntsville and spent her time volunteering with her mother for the Women's Temperance Union through their church where they knitted socks for the soldiers and raised money for the troops. In October, the fire ranging gig ended, so he wasn't fired. He literally had to see it through. And Tom made some extra cash by hauling stones to make a fireplace for one of the locals. When he turned to Toronto for the winter, he found everything to be in a dismal state. His friends and colleagues were split up because of the war. Some were enlisted while others moved on to find work because they were close to bankruptcy. On top of this, most of them had become bitter toward one another. So they were like claiming one person's success truly belonged to this person. Or they're trying to bring each other down by like diminishing their talents like stuff like that just like just letting the little things get to them and blowing them up petty things exactly petty painters <laughs> tom returned to canoe lake at the beginning of april 1917 he had little money but wrote that he could manage for about one year with few tourists and even less people to guide he spent time at moat lodge with the only other guests lieutenant crombie and his wife daphne so there wasn't as many uh, tourists and guests because of the war. People didn't have the money, means, time to travel. And so many people were currently serving. 
The Crombies arrived at the lodge in the winter of 1916, where Lieutenant Crombie was hoping to recover from tuberculosis. Daphne Crombie made friends with Tom when he arrived in the spring, and she would often sit and talk with him while he painted. Tom kept busy hunting a trout that frequented a dam with his friend and local park ranger, Mark Robinson. And it's actually like pretty funny, and it kind of goes to show how they didn't have the normal duties and responsibilities they would have because of how hard the area was hit by war. So they were like essentially just trying to keep busy. <laughs> Quote, on the morning of his death, he almost got the old trout. And as he missed it, he said, I am going to one of the little lakes and get a trout and put it on Mark's doorstep early in the morning. And he will think it's the old fish from the dam. <laughs> they returned to Moat Lodge. Thompson got out his canoe. He had no bread. Fraser went up to the lodge, got him a loaf, and Thompson stowed it away with a can of corn syrup under the bow of the canoe, end quote. So he was, like, going to mess with the park ranger. That was his friend that they had this, like, friendly wager going with. He was like, give me stuff. I'm going to stock up in my canoe. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to find any trout. I don't care what it is. And I'm going to put it on Mark Robinson's doorstep and be like, huh, I won the bet. That's funny. It just they were like losing their damn minds up there. Gotta keep busy. What should we do? Let's get that trout. He also spent time by digging two gardens. So he dug one for the lodge for the Frasers, who owned Moat Lodge, and one for Winnie's family, so his girlfriend's family. On July 8th, 1917, Tom embarked from Canoe Lake in a canoe loaded with equipment and supplies and disappeared. His upturned canoe was found at 3 p.m. that afternoon. His spare paddle was strapped awkwardly into portaging position, allegedly not at all the way Tom would have had it, and his favorite paddle was missing and couldn't be located despite repeated searching of the shoreline. His body was discovered in the lake eight days after his canoe, with fishing line wrapped around his legs. He had a bruise and a four-inch cut on his right temple and had bled from his right ear. The cause of death was officially ruled to be accidental drowning, though the inquest that reached the conclusion was criticized as being rushed. A police investigation was never conducted. There was no autopsy. No doctor professionally examined Tom's body, and the accidental drowning verdict was accepted during an informal inquest that locals sat in on and had a say in. The day after Tom's body was discovered, it was interned in the tiny Moat Cemetery. Under the direction of Tom's older brother, George, the body was exhumed by Undertaker Churchill, Mark Robinson, the Algonquin Park Ranger, tasked four men to help Churchill with the job. They opened the grave, and the body was badly decomposed but still recognizable as Tom. The remains were transferred into a metal box and sealed. The empty coffin and rough box were put back, and the grave was filled in. The metal box with the body was placed in a coffin and Tom's brother George accompanied the coffin on the train where it was being taken to the new undertaker in Owen Sound, which is where he's from and had the family plot to be buried in. The Owen Sound undertaker had delivered the coffin containing the body of Tom to the Thompson home. Tom's father called his friend and neighbor John McKean to come over. John Thompson wanted the undertaker to open the coffin, but didn't want to do it alone. The coffin was opened in the presence of both men, 
who readily identified the remains. Tom's father was relieved that he no longer had doubts as to the whereabouts of his son. The undertaker from Owen Sound reinterred Tom on July 21, 1917, in the family plot beside the Leith Presbyterian Church. Since no police investigation was conducted, people began speculating on what really happened to Tom. It seemed inconceivable to the people in his life and the locals of Canoe Lake that a proficient canoeist and an excellent swimmer could accidentally drown. Rumors began swirling. Was he murdered? Was it a suicide? On top of speculating how Tom truly died, locals heard rumors that one of their own had murdered Tom. That's very, very suspicious. And guess what? What? That's where we're going to leave it. Wow. So that's part one. And we're going to come back for part two. All right. And we are going to speculate on the theories of Tom Thompson's death. What happened to him? Are the locals right? Was he murdered? What the heck happened? We're also going to get into a crazy twist. So just when we're speculating on all of the things that could have happened to Tom, something wild is going to come up and it's going to be like, yo, where did that come from? And that's a callback to the beginning when I said this isn't about one mystery. It's two. I can't wait to find out what it is. It will be very exciting. So everyone stay tuned. I'm not going to make you wait. You don't have to wait another week to hear this. They'll be released one after the other, but it's just to break it up and keep you guys intrigued. So thank you so much for tuning into part one. Make sure you check us out on Instagram, Dark Adaptation Podcast. We have a website. Oh my God, me and Dyson spent like a whole weekend making a website. It is really cool. Go on there. Check us out. That's where our sources are. You can buy us a coffee if you want. Darkadaptationpodcast.ca. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Steph, you want to say anything? Thank you for tuning in tonight. We'll be back very soon to finish things up and wrap up this very, very interesting mystery. I can't wait to find out what else is in store here. Oh, it's going to get crazy. It's going to get crazy. It's going to be good. Super interesting. Thanks, guys. And we will catch you on the dark side. grew up on a farm near Leith. Leith? Dyson? We looked this up. Was it Leith? Let <laughs> us know. <laughs> Dyson? Maybe it's Leith? Like Leith Garrett? Leith. 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 Okay. From the, from the top, okay. Ni- 1917, fine carriages. <laughs> okay. Although he was born in the town of Claremont in Pickering Township, Ontario, he grew up on a farm in Leith. <laughs> Leith. Leith. For fuck's sakes. The tip of the tongue, the teeth, the leith. Holy. <laughs>